1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about how the coronavirus has created a new sense of solidarity in New York City and in other places in America and around the world. Katrina Vandenhoevel will explain. First up, Joseph Stiglitz. He won the Nobel Prize in Economics nearly two decades ago for identifying inequities in market economies. He spent his career warning that economic inequality is a great enemy of democracy. He's been a critic of monopoly power and a defender of higher taxes. And now his new book, People, Power, and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent, has just been published in paperback this week with a new preface. Joseph Stiglitz, you've argued for years that the economy has not been working well for large parts of the country long before the virus hit. And you ask what kind of economy might best serve the interests of all Americans and the rest of the world And you emphasize the interconnections between politics and economics, which have never been clearer than in the last few months with the coronavirus. I'd like to start by asking what you think about the federal response to the economic crisis brought by the coronavirus. And of course, there's many aspects. Let's, let's take them one at a time and maybe start with unemployment. We've expanded the unemployment program. We've increased the payments by $600 a month. How would you describe our unemployment program right now?
2: One of the poorest unemployment insurance systems in the world, both in terms of coverage, uh, uh, that is to say the fraction of the population who had unemployment insurance, and in terms of what is called the replacement rate, the fraction of your income that uh, you get if you get unemployed. Uh, The program made uh, some advances. It included uh, freelance workers, gig workers. uh, And the $600 was, uh, again, uh, uh, an important step in increasing the replacement rate to make it uh, more adequate. But what I would emphasize that um, a number of countries, Denmark, uh, France, began their rescue policies by saying, let's try to keep workers connected with their employers. Let's try to avoid a large increase in the unemployment rate. That's important because when we restart the economy, those connections will be absolutely vital. And it's even more important in the United States because Americans depend on health insurance for their employer. And uh, if they're uh, moved to unemployment, then they get put on Medicaid. uh, They have to find new doctors. And this is not the time uh, to lose your health insurance. So uh, in that critical aspect, our performance has been dismal. Uh, The increase in the unemployment rate in the United States is outdistanced that of other countries. And that was partly because our program was not well designed. Uh, And uh, the poorest of the design was probably what was called the PPP program, um, where uh, it was supposed to go to small businesses and... It went to large businesses, or not the largest, but the, the largest of the that could get under the rubric of the small.
1: So, do you think we're going to have twenty or twenty five percent unemployment for for a long time? Uh, will laid off workers ever get their jobs back, or or do we need direct employment by the federal government on I suppose on infrastructure programs? Well. A
2: lot of this uh, will depend on how, what the government does in the next few months, uh, what the government does when the pandemic gets under uh, control, and of course, very importantly, uh, how, how this disease evolves. And we don't know uh, how that will happen. We don't know whether a, uh, an antiretroviral that will be discovered, a vaccine. Uh, there are much that we don't know. Uh, Right now, I think we are not doing a good job in preparing the economy for uh, the emergence from the pandemic. Uh, That's uh, my criticism, you know, so evident in the enormous increase in the unemployment rate. Uh, After we come out of the pandemic, um, we will probably need some stimulus to the economy. And uh, designing that will be important. Uh, But I want to emphasize, when we're talking about coming out, it's not going to be in three months because the uncertainties about a second wave are going to be with us. Uh, When I say coming out, I mean, we're talking about uh, a year or more from now. So the discussion of for instance, the infrastructure by the president, is totally out of place. Uh, Infrastructure requires planning. Uh, It takes a long time to be put in place. And it, therefore, doesn't uh, belong as part of the uh, immediate response to the pandemic.
1: And do you see it? uh, Are are you in favor of some kind of program of direct employment by the federal government? Well, what I think is the uh, program that we need
2: right now is what was called the Payment Guarantee Program that Representative Jayapal, uh and there are other versions of that in the Senate mm-hmm. which attempt to keep the link between workers and their employers, which says the government uh, will uh, pay for the employer uh, to pay for uh, the worker to keep his health insurance. Um, and it, you know, the amount the government would pay would be reflect the magnitude of the shock that the firm has paid, the decrease in its revenues. Uh, that seems to me be the best way for now. And uh, what could design the program so that while they're at the employer, they can get a training program Uh, Their skills can be increased so that when production starts again, they'll be all the more productive. Uh, And so I think this could be a a real good uh, time for investment in human capital. Uh, Eventually, if we don't make the right actions today, when we come out of the pandemic there will be a problem. And then the question you pose becomes the appropriate one. What is the best way of returning to full employment? And uh, I think we're going to need a, uh, hopefully, we won't be in that kind of state where we need massive programs. But I think that we should learn the lesson uh, of the Great Depression, where government employment programs have had lasting benefits. Uh, You know, if you go to one of our national parks, you're enjoying the investments that we made in the 1930s. And hopefully we'll make some similar kinds of investment that our children and grandchildren will be enjoying 80 years
1: from now. Haven't we learned that some kind of universal health care completely independent of employers is, is essential now? Some kind of Medicare for all or something like it?
2: Well, I think what we've learned first is that our healthcare system doesn't work very well. Uh, and that the toll that it exerts on the poorest is, should be viewed as unacceptable. Uh, United States is the only country that doesn't recognize the right of access to health care. And the result of that is health status of Americans is lower than in other advanced countries, even though we spend so much more. And health inequalities are greater than in other countries. This nasty virus goes after people who have weak health status. And that's why it's had such a devastating uh, effect on so many low-income communities across the United States. So the first order in my mind is, let's make sure that everybody has access to health care. Now, I agree with you that uh, uh, having some kind of single-payer, uh, some system like France. All of these, There are many different ways of making sure that everybody has access to health care and separating out that link between employer and health coverage. I think uh, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, which of these systems, whether France or the UK is better, is a matter of debate. But we also face a political problem transition. And I'd rather see things get done then uh, not let uh, the, uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good.
1: Well, the other part of the economic aid package passed by Congress are these immense funds available to the biggest uh, corporations. You've been concerned your whole career about, about exacerbating inequality. Isn't that pretty much the obvious result of, of the funds that are available to the Fed and the Secretary of the Treasury to dole out?
2: I'm to show you that will be one of the consequences. You know, My view at the very beginning is our objective should be first protect health, for instance, by making sure everybody had access to uh, paid sick leave. We recognize, Congress recognized the principle, but then exempted 75 to 80%, uh, including the big businesses that we are now bailing out. That should have been totally unacceptable. The second priority should have been protecting the most vulnerable. And we haven't been doing a very good job. And that's reflected in the increase in the unemployment rate. Um, the third uh, is uh, making sure that our economic capacity is maintained for the day when the pandemic is put under control. But Funds are scarce, and we have to allocate them carefully to make sure that they go to where they're really needed and to help the people who are most vulnerable. Um, What I find so unconscionable is, for instance, giving $25 billion to the airlines when some of those airlines got a bundle of money in 2017 as as a result of the tax cut in 2017. uh, One of them didn't pay any taxes. In 2018, they paid out billions and billions of dollars in dividends and share buybacks. They didn't put the money to good use in creating capital buffer. Uh, They mismanaged, in a sense, the company. And now we're supposed to rescue them so that they can line their pockets even more? To me, that's unconscionable. Uh, What we should have done is to insist that, okay. you need funds now, we'll take a stake in your firm so that we're, we're not just taking the downside risk, uh, we're getting the upside potential. And uh, there ought to be uh, a compensation to our taxpayers who've been robbed blind by these companies. Uh, and, uh, you know, it would be one thing if they have been contributing what they should. But many of these, uh, one of their key skills of the chief financial officers is avoiding taxes.
1: Mm-hmm. And let's talk for, for, for a minute about Amazon, clearly the biggest winner. They have this huge ability to deliver stuff to you and me, and they were just knocking on my front door right before uh, we initiated this call. Uh, uh, Amazon is gonna emerge ever bigger, ever more powerful, should we do something about the size and economic power of Amazon?
2: Well, One of the issues I raise in my book, uh, People, Power and Profits, is uh, the middle uh, word is power. Mm. And uh, one aspect of power that I was very worried about was economic power, monopoly power, but one of the reasons I'm concerned about that is that it's inevitable that kind of economic power gets translated into political power. That was the reason we passed antitrust legislation in the late uh, 19th century. It's absolutely clear, my book documents it, the growth in market power in the United States. It is one of the factors contributing to the growth of inequality. It's one of the reasons. Our economy overall growth rate has not been doing very well. Uh, And so, to me, a first order, you know, we don't have a competitive market economy, we have a monopoly economy. Uh, And uh, this kind of monopoly, where they are able to use some of the information they get to take advantage of us, to exploit us is even worse than the old-style monopoly that we had at the end of the 19th century with standard oil and, and the tobacco monopolies. So I am even more concerned about monopoly today than I would have been at the end of the 19th century. So yes, something should be done. Now, you ask the question, what? Well, in my book, I talk about two different kinds of things. In some cases, we can break up the monopolies. There was no reason we should have allowed Facebook to uh, acquire uh, Instagram, the other acquisitions, we should just separate them. Uh, And we've done that kind of structural separation in the past. The second thing is to make sure they don't engage in anti-competitive practices, that they don't convert the power that they have uh, in one area to leverage monopoly power in another area. We saw that, for instance, with uh, Microsoft, where it controlled the operating system and it leveraged that to control uh, uh, the software programs uh, for office uh, for offices. Yes. Uh, and that's been going on. They've been uh, using the information that they get with artificial intelligence uh, to take advantage. Uh, of uh, their customers, and uh, interestingly, also of their suppliers. Uh, So uh, uh, they allow people on the platform, and then when they start to do well, they introduce something, uh, 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 a product to compete with them. Uh, That shouldn't be allowed. They're either a platform, a neutral platform, or they're a competitor, but they can't be both. And we have to uh, stop that kind of, of anti-competitive practice, which has become pervasive, not only in on Amazon, but elsewhere uh, in, those, uh, in those firms.
1: Some of the other things on the list that, of things we need Congress to do something about right away, but certainly on January 20th, assuming uh, Joe Biden becomes president, the Democrats regain the Senate, state and local government relief, postal service funding, eviction protection, rent cancellation, payroll support, bankruptcy reform. What are your priorities here? Well, I
2: think I, I begin with two of the things which I view to be the central functions of government that have been undermined uh, in the last 40 years. One of these is uh, social protection. Uh, another one is education and research. Um, let me first begin with uh, education and research. Uh, one of the themes of my book is that I asked the question, why is it that our society, our economy, uh, is so much better off than we were 250 years ago? Uh, and the answer is science. And advances in social organization. Um, Science has uh, done absolute wonders. And some of the evidence of that is right now with the COVID 19. uh, Without science, we would not have been able to identify this. We wouldn't even be talking about a vaccine or antiretroviral. Uh, We would be like the Uh, Middle Ages, the Black Plague, we knew something was happening, but we didn't know what it was and had no idea how to respond. Um, So science is absolutely essential. Uh, And yet, the administration has called for a cutback in science every year of about 30%. Hmm. And, of course, those cutbacks left us uh, much less prepared to address uh, this pandemic. Science, of course, requires education. And uh, we are uh, going to be facing a very difficult time in our educational institutions. Every one of their major sources of revenue are going to be uh, drying up. Um, And that then brings me to, uh, at the top of my list, are uh, support for science support for state and local governments, because state and local governments provide uh, uh, education, support for welfare, and health care, um, Medicaid. They are the backbone of our you know, fiber, of our communities. And yet, they will be devastated by this crisis. Their revenues will plummet. They all have balanced budget frameworks. That means when the revenues go down, they have to cut back on their expenditures. That is a word that in Europe became a a dirty word called austerity. And we know what happens with austerity. The economy goes down. If you do it ruthlessly enough, you can get the unemployment rate up to 25%. You can get the youth unemployment rate up to 60%. Uh, The EU did it in in Greece. We could do it too. Uh, So if we don't, help the state and local communities, we will have a social disaster, a economic disaster, but also the future prospects of our economy will be uh, uh, in danger. The second thing uh, that uh, I would emphasize uh, th- that uh, uh, we need to, uh, to do is Uh, address the whole range of problems associated with inequalities, which have uh, exerted such a toll on our economy. And one of the points of my book was to try to understand the foundations of that inequality so that we had the best approaches to addressing it. You know, the reason we have so much inequality in the United States is not the laws of nature Uh, not the laws of economics, it's the laws of man, it's policy. Other countries have the same laws of supply and demand uh, as we do. Uh, uh, It's not the laws of economics that differ between us and Norway, Uh, (laughs) it's policy. And we've adopted a set of policies that have exacerbated both inequalities in market income and inequalities in after-tax and transfer incomes. And so uh, we need to systematically deal with each of those major causes. And one of the things that's concerned me over, for a long time is the intergenerational transmission of advantages and disadvantages a wealth uh, from one generation to another. And that's, of course, related as well to the pervasive discrimination that uh, we see uh, in the United States. Uh, one of the most disappointing aspects of the COVID-19 response was uh, the way it's playing out in access to PPP, to the small yeah. business loans, where it appears that those who are connected with the banks are doing a lot better. Mm-hmm. than the most less connected. And as you would uh, have expected, it's the more vulnerable who are less connected.
1: Joseph Stiglitz, his book, People, Power, and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent is out in paperback this week with a new preface. Professor Stiglitz, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you, and it was a delight. hear a lot of bad news about demonstrations demanding the end of the coronavirus stay at home policy and Trump tweeting, Liberate Michigan and Liberate Minnesota from the public health policies required by the virus. But there's another story. The crisis has created a new sense of solidarity all over America. For that, we turn to Katrina Vandenhoevel. Of course, she's publisher and editorial director of The Nation and a weekly columnist at The Washington Post Online. We reached her today at home. In Manhattan, Katrina, welcome back.
3: Thank you, John. I hope you, you,
1: and yours are safe. Well, thank you. You live in New York City, which has been, of course, the hardest hit of all American cities. More than twice as many deaths as from the nine eleven attack already. But there's this scene every night on the streets of New York. Seven o'clock is when the shift changes at hospitals, when medical workers who've been there all day emerge from the, the disease war zone into the open air. Tell us about seven o'clock in New York City.
3: I was sitting reading one afternoon, it was seven o'clock one evening, and I heard the sound of cheers and clapping and clanging, a kind of standing ovation, if you will, for the first responders for the doctors, the nurses, the custodians, the cooks, and other healthcare workers risking their lives to save thousands of lives. And it was such a reassuring sound, John. At first, I didn't know what it was. And in New York City, you know, you never know. And it is such a reassuring sound at 7 p.m. because the city's quiet is very quiet. I'm sure your listeners have seen these photos of empty, empty canyons. And you often hear just the piercing wail of an ambulance or a fire truck. So these sounds are signs of life. Amidst death, as you said, New York City is the epicenter. New York is, I think has more deaths than any other country. So this is really powerful. And I will say that, you know what, we all know that the pandemic has exposed, cruelly exposed the pre-existing weaknesses of our health system, our political system, our economic system. But at the same time, it has, as I write and I feel, generated a new sense of solidarity. And in that spirit, it's very encouraging in terms of what might come out of this, John, because we don't know when that will be, but you're a historian. In so many other horrific moments in our history, in other countries' histories, it required a crisis to bring about a more radical change. If you have the conditions, if you have the movements, if you have the solidarity, if you have leaders, And so in that spirit, I'm moved by what I'm seeing in New York, not just as I say, New York, around the country and the world.
1: Yeah, I was talking to uh, I was trying to set up a a FaceTime visit with a a friend who lives on the Lower East Side. And she said, well, it can't be at seven o'clock because that's when I go out and bang on my pots with all the other neighbors. But as you say in your new column at The Washington Post online, it's not just cheering, Americans are also taking action that expresses this new kind of solidarity. Uh, Let's talk about the action for a minute.
3: So I love that, you know, Staten Island, uh, one of the great boroughs, complicated boroughs, um, you have undocumented women who've lost their jobs, sewing face masks for workers on the front lines of pandemics. You have Sikh temples, uh, mobilizing their communal kitchens to prepare thousands of meals for seniors, and other vulnerable people and restaurants around the city, John, you know, are donating food, are donating pizzas and more to healthcare workers with no time to leave their hospitals. So it's, it's New York, but it's also New Jersey. Uh, college students are filling in for elderly meal on wheels volunteers. Michigan school buses have become food trucks. Uh, around the country uh, our sports correspondent Dave Ziron, I didn't report this, but sports arenas are converting to help and become hospitals and with workers. And Chinese Americans, John, who are facing threats of violence, faced heightened violence and hostility since the pandemic began, since xenophobia has been unleashed, raising money for life-saving medical equipment. So what's important is it's not just the cheering, which is inspiring, but it leads to acts and it leads to actions. I do love the story. Uh, Nation editor Don Guttenplan is in London as we speak. And he had just I think they took a break from their seder to hear what I report in the column, which is the clapping. It's weekly clapping, interestingly, in mm-hmm. the UK, and it's clapping for the National Health Service. Mm. And it's no longer just about volunteers. When they asked for two hundred fifty thousand volunteers as part of like the ovation in Britain, they got seven hundred fifty thousand. But there was something called one million claps, which just raised some five million pounds for the NH- NHS. So that's powerful. And our copy, our, our senior editor, Ron Carey, as you know, is in Spain. We got a multinational team here. And in Spain, as in, <laughs> yes. I think in Italy, th- this is where the clapping on the balconies, the cheering began. And in classic yes. uh, Italian fashion, they're lowering food baskets from windows to workers. So there's a lot happening in terms of the solidarity that one hopes and seeks coming out of this.
1: And of course, all of this is happening without the kind of national leadership that the times deserve and require. And that makes these more grassroots uh, efforts and efforts in our big cities, all the more, all the more important because we're not getting anything that we need. We're not getting what we need from from the White House. The
3: if I had to describe the daily press conferences at the White House, the rallies, the rallies, there is such a lack of compassion from the president. It is a measure, I think, of how solidarity is bubbling and building up outside because we're not seeing it now we do see it let's be honest i mean we've talked a lot about this john it's not just the president we've kind of ignored and tried to avert our eyes from some of the cravenness and rank uh, venality of this president but governors are showing some leadership of compassion mm-hmm. mayors even down ballot so to speak local officials and i do think and i wrote this In the column, I think it's um, vital that there be people solidarity. I've always believed in change from the bottom up and solidarity from the bottom up being met from above, but the solidarity is a supplement. It's not to supplant the role of government. And I was on, we started a breakfast series at the Nation, John, uh, noon on Wednesdays for the West Coast participants.
1: (laughs) Thank you for that.
3: We had the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, the second largest caucus in the House, Pramila Jayapal, the terrific representative from Seattle, and she spoke so eloquently in concrete accessible ways about some of the legislation, which if we could pass would make an enormous difference in the lives of the most vulnerable unemployed, like paycheck protection guarantee. And I will say the other part of solidarity that moves me is that there is a solidarity around ideas that were once considered marginal, but at times, even before crisis, but certainly at crisis moved to the center, because as someone wrote, reality endorses them, reality endorses these ideas. And I'm thinking of Medicare for all. I mean, think of what a country we would be if we didn't have this fractured, balkanized healthcare system. And I'd also think that the existential crisis of climate has to be amplified in these times and a green new deal is not just grappling with that crisis but it's also putting people back to work which is going to be so critical john because we're looking at great depression figures and it's um it's frightening but it's also i think if we have leadership and ideas moving in new ways as i said out of crisis have come some real possibilities in this country's and world's history
1: so in New York City, 7 o'clock every evening, when the hospital shift changes, you hear the banging, the clapping, the roar of the crowd shouting out their thank yous to the healthcare workers. Walt Whitman wrote, I hear America singing. I guess that's sort of what it's like. Katrina Vandenhoevel, read her at the Washington Post online and at thenation.com. Thank you, Katrina.
3: Thank you, John, for you and for Walt Whitman.
1: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineers, is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. For more principled, progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe online to our print and digital magazine at thenation.com podcastsubscribe with this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all our articles for less than $1.50 a month. Or you can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. That's at thenation.com backslash podcast subscribe, one word. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts. At Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.